The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Good morning, Two Pillars Church. My name is Craig Ruskamp, and if we haven't met, I would love to meet you this morning. And if we have met this morning, I want you to know that I'm really grateful for the community that God has brought together here at Two Pillars Church, and I'm excited for the word God has for us this morning. Now, this summer, we're doing a series called The Book of the Twelve, where each week we take time to preach through one book of the Twelve Minor Prophets, and this week we'll be in the, we will be in the book of Amos. And we're actually going to be going all over the place in the book of Amos, all nine chapters, so you're going to want to have a copy of that in front of you this morning. So as you get that out, let me pray for us again this morning. Um, Father, as we enter into your word, your message for us, Lord, I pray that your spirit is on us, helping us understand who you are, helping us know you more, helping us know how to glorify you more, Lord. And, And as we sit here today on Father's Day, as your sons and daughters, Lord, I pray that we see this message you have for us as our Father. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So like we've said several times today, today is Father's Day. So if you're a dad, happy Father's Day to you out there. Today actually lines up in a very unique way for me because I am a dad, and we are going to be in the book of Amos, and I have a son named Amos. So, of course, we have to start with a story about Amos, my son. Now, Amos is not here, so I can do whatever I want, I guess. But he's he's four years old, and he's in the stage of life that all children go through where his response to almost everything you say to him, whether it's a question, a direction, or even a statement of fact, is why. Here's how most of our conversations go. Amos... Can you please put your bowl in the sink? Why? Amos, did you know giraffes are really tall? Why? Amos, could you please get out of the street? Why? Amos, can I please tell a story about you this week when I am preaching? Why? Now, I feel like this is relevant to us this morning because I can imagine the Israelites responding to the prophet Amos' message in the same way. Why? Now, to begin to gain some context for that, we only need to read the first chapter, excuse me, the first verse of chapter one of Amos. So let's turn there. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now here in the first verse, we are given a timeline for when Amos appears in the history of the Bible. We read, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. This would have been somewhere between 760 and 750 BC. And what we see here is there is a king of Judah and a king of Israel. So this is during the time when the original nation of Israel is split into two kingdoms. We have Judah, the southern kingdom. It's smaller because it only consisted of one tribe. 
And then we have Israel, the northern kingdom, which is larger because it contained the other 11 tribes. And I say, I bring out this distinction because I'm going to say Israel a lot this morning. And for our purpose, when I say that, I'm actually referring to just the northern kingdom. Now, if we would go back to 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 28, we would read that Jeroboam, during his 41-year reign as king, is used by God to restore some of the borders of Israel. The Cambridge Bible Commentary says this about this time in Israel's history. A civilized Israelite would have felt that there was much to be proud of in Jeroboam's Israel. So this was a time in history when both nations, Israel and Judah, were experiencing wealth and prosperity. And as we continue to read in the book of Amos, we're going to see over and over how they use that wealth. The people of Israel viewed this wealth as a sign that God was blessing them. They equated wealth and prosperity with God's favor. Because of their wealth and prosperity and supposed favor with God, they would have asked, why? Why is this prophet coming to us now? Well, the other thing we learn about in the first verse of the book of Amos is about Amos himself. Amos is the first of the minor prophets to have prophesied to the people of Israel. And in fact, he's not only the first of the minor prophets, but he comes before all of the major prophets. So his message was not only new, but shocking to the people of Israel. In verse 1, we read that Amos was among the shepherds of Tekoa. And here is why understanding all of this northern kingdom and southern kingdom stuff is important. Amos is from Tekoa, which is in the southern kingdom of Judah, but he is prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos, a southerner, is bringing his message to the northern kingdom. And we learn a little bit more about Amos in chapter 7, verse 14 of Amos. We read, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Amaziah is a priest who served at Bethel in Israel, which places Amos in the northern kingdom again. So we have a farmer from the southern kingdom who is not the son of a prophet, which means he has no formal training, but rather, as he often does, God is using someone of lowly circumstances to bring his message. Think David, the shepherd who becomes a king, or Abraham, a humble man becoming the father of the people of Israel, or Paul, who went from persecuting Christians to bringing God's message to the Gentiles. In fact, it is Paul who writes this in 1 Corinthians For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Amos has been called, taken from his flock by God to prophesy to the people of Israel. Now, earlier I shared a quote from the Cambridge Bible Commentary, but I actually cut it short. And now I want us to see the next sentence of that quote. We started with 
a civilized Israelite would have felt that there was much to be proud of in Jeroboam's Israel. It continues with this. But to Amos, there is only one standard by which a society is judged. Not by its economic prosperity or the extent of its political influence, but by the way it treats its poor. In just one verse, we begin to see why God has sent Amos to the people of Israel. Here's what I want us to do this morning with the rest of the message of Amos. I want us to see first, God's judgment for injustice and idolatry. Second, the consequences of injustice and idolatry. Third, God's mercy and restoration. And then finally, at the end of our time today, I want us to apply some of what we learned here to our own lives. We will ask, why the book of Amos for us? Now, the second verse of Amos chapter 1 introduces us to the main character of this book. We read, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. The top of Carmel withers. Now, the main character is not Amos, for whom this book is named for. It is not the people of Israel who this book is written to. Rather, it is God. This verse, like most of the book of Amos, is poetry. And in it, God is roaring, roaring like a lion. This is imagery. We know what a lion roaring sounds like. We know that when a lion roars, the other animals take notice. Their senses are alerted. Same with God. When he speaks, we should all take notice. Our senses should be alerted. The Israelites are being told to take notice. There's also a significance in this verse to where God is roaring from. Jerusalem talked earlier about that when the kingdom of Israel split, one of the first things the northern king did was establish new places of worship at Bethel and Dan and other places. The king also set up golden calves, idols in them, and he established his own priesthood. And all of this so that his people wouldn't have to go to worship in Jerusalem. So a lion roaring from Jerusalem would catch their attention in a way that ours isn't. It is reminding them of a time when they worshipped in Jerusalem as God commanded. We read about this same imagery in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? These two verses not only continue to paint a picture of God as a roaring lion, but they also bring validity, authority to Amos' message. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Even if he wanted to, Amos couldn't stop this message from God. Even if the Israelites don't want to listen, they should be afraid. So we have a context and an author and a main character in just two Verses. And starting in chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 3, we're going to see a pattern repeated six times of God judging the nations around Israel. 
If we would look at a map, we would see that these nations form a circle around the Israelites. Damascus to the northeast, Gaza to the west, Tyre to the northwest, Edom to the southeast, the Ammonites to the east, and at the beginning of chapter 2, Moab to the east. Now, every one of these six judgments starts with the same line. Thus says the Lord. These are God's words, his pronouncement, his judgment. And then they continue with a pattern like this. For three transgressions of and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. The people of Israel would know this as it was a way of expressing enough. God is not listing a certain number of sins of the nations, but rather signaling that he is done. Time is up. He is going to judge these, judge these nations, and specifically for how they are treating other people. They have, for example, threshed Gilead with threshing sleds of iron, carried into exile a whole people, delivered up a whole people, Pursued a brother with the sword and cast off all pity. Ripped open pregnant women and burned to lie the bones of a king. These are all sins, atrocities that these nations have done against other people. And there will be consequences. God will judge all nations, even those that do not know him. He will judge them for their treatment of other people. And the consequences for this mistreatment is the same for all six of these nations. God will send a fire upon them, which means war. All of these nations end up falling at the hand of another nation's military power. If we step back, it is likely at this point, as the Israelites are hearing this, they actually would have been enjoying these judgments against the other nations. They would also have viewed themselves as exempt from God's judgment. After all, they are his people, right? His chosen nation. This is great news. Except that as we continue reading in chapter 2, verse 4, God's next judgment is for the southern kingdom of Judah. And this judgment follows the same pattern as the preceding six nations, except for one important distinction. God is not judging Judah for its sin against other people, but rather he is judging them for sinning against him, for breaking the covenant they have entered into with him and the laws God has set before them. God is condemning the people of Judah for their disobedience, and as a consequence of their disobedience, we read the strongholds of Jerusalem will be devoured. Now, even though Judah would have been considered a separate nation to the northern kingdom of Israel, this still probably hits a little bit too close to home. But next, in verse 6, God begins declaring his judgment on the people of Israel. And this judgment will continue through almost the entire book of Amos. And as we will see, God judges the people of Israel for their injustice and their idolatry. Let's take a look at a few examples of injustice. First, in chapter 2, verse 6, God begins by judging them for their sin against the righteous and the needy and the poor. They are selling the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and they are trampling the head of the poor into the dust. If we continue on in chapter 3, 
verse 15, we read about God striking the winter house and the summer house and the houses of ivory. Those that are mistreating the poor and needy are taking their stolen wealth and using it to build vacation homes made of ivory, which probably cost as much as a two-by-four in our time. I, I don't actually know that. But what I do know is that ivory is a sign of wealth and extravagance. If we turn to chapter 4, it begins with what we today would regard as a particularly crude insult. Hear this, you cows of Bashan. But Amos is not referring to these women, women as fat or ugly, but rather he was referring to the luxury and laziness brought about by the relative ease of their lives. And as they trample the poor on the one hand, they call for the husbands to bring them more wine on the other. This wine would have been bought with the wealth they have won by oppressing the poor and needy. If we skip ahead to chapter 5 in verses 10 and 12, we read more about the injustice happening in Israel. Verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. And then verse 12, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. This word gate is a reference to their court system. If you had a disagreement with someone, you took it to the elders at the gate to present your argument and allow them to make a judgment. But here we see that even the judicial system of the Israelites has been perverted. And if all these aren't great examples for you, Amos calls out injustice specifically in the second half of chapter 6, verse 12. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Let me give you one more. In chapters 8, verses 4 through 6, we read, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell again, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. The wealthy Israelites can't wait for the Sabbath to be over so that they can continue to cheat and steal and make more money for themselves. We can't miss this here. This is like they are showing up at church but chomping at the bit to leave. So the first answer to why, injustice. Mistreatment of the poor and needy that results in more wealth and luxury for the rich. We also see God judging the Israelites for their idolatry. If we go back to chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we read, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. The reference to Bethel here harkens back to when the kingdom splits under Jeroboam 1, not the Jeroboam 2 of Amos' time. So Jeroboam 1 had an altar built at Bethel and golden calves made and even assigned his own priest to lead the people in false worship. And no king since then has gotten rid of them. 
So when Amos says that God will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns shall be cut off and fall to the ground, he is judging their false worship at this false temple to these false gods. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, God sarcastically calls them to continue worshiping. We read, Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do. There's the sarcasm. O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Bethel is mentioned once again, but added to that the improper sacrifices and offerings that the Israelites love to do. They are failing to follow God's statutes and their offerings to him, and rather following their own guidelines for worship. We read here about offering leavened bread when they should have been offering unleavened bread, and proclaiming free will offerings when they should have been keeping those quiet. A similar statement of God's disgust for false worship picks up again in chapter 5, verses 21 to 23. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Here we read, without sarcasm, that God hates he despises the feasts. He takes no delight in the solemn assemblies. He will not accept their offerings. He will not even look at them. He doesn't want to hear their worship, which to him just sounds like noise. And if we would continue to read into verse 25, he references more false gods that they have created for themselves. Now, at this point, I think we have answered the why of Amos's message, that in spite of how highly the Israelites thought of them themselves, they are actually cultivating a society where the rich take advantage of the poor and a continued false worship of God. That's why Amos is here. Now let's take a look at some of the consequences for these sins. These consequences haven't come Without warning, in chapter 4, starting in verse 6 and continuing until the end of the chapter, Amos lays out the ways the people have been warned. Verse 6 says cleanness of teeth. That means they have had a famine. Verses 7 and 8, we read, I also withheld the rain from you. That's a drought. In verse 9, we read, I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards. Your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. It's an agricultural disaster. In verses 10 and 11, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. That's plagues and war. So God is warning the people, and particularly in ways that should have reminded them of the plagues of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 28, God promises that if the Israelites keep his commandments, he will bless them. 
But if they ignore him and are not careful to keep his commandments, he will curse them. They have not heeded this warning, so there will be consequences. And these consequences are given particularly to the Israelites because they are God's people. We read about this in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. These are God's people, yet he will still punish them for their iniquities. The consequences for Israel begin in chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. We read that God is pressing them down as a cart full of sheaves. Also keenly aware of their military might, these verses are a direct attack on their prideful military strength. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and the strong shall not retain their strength. Your armies will not be enough to save you. We see more consequences in chapter 3, verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Now we are able to sit here in our time knowing that about 40 years later, the Assyrians do come and destroy the nation of Israel and carry them off into exile. We read about that in 2 Kings chapter 17, right? This happens. In chapter 4, the calves of Bashan, the rich women, they shall be taken away with hooks out through the breaches and cast into Harmon. Chapter 5, verse 3, for thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Again, pointing to the large number of people that are going to be carried off into exile. Consequences continue in chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. Now this is from the section we talked about earlier with the gates, the judicial system. Those who are afflicting the righteous... And turning aside the needy shall not even live in the houses they build or drink from the vineyards they are growing. If we continue in chapter 5 to verse 18, we hear about the day of the Lord. Something we covered in the book of Joel last week. But once again, we see this warning for the Israelites who are desiring a day of the Lord because they think it will be good for them. But it will actually be a day of darkness and gloom for them. Now, I could go on because there's a lot more, but I actually want us to turn ahead to chapter 8, starting in verse 11, because this is actually the worst consequence. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro 
to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Starting with Adam and Eve in the garden, God has spoken to his people throughout the history of the Bible. Noah, to build an ark and be saved from the flood. Abraham, to leave his land and become the father of a great nation. Moses, starting at the burning bush and continuing throughout the Exodus. David, from shepherd boy to king. The list goes on. But Amos here tells them that the consequence of their injustice and false worship shall be a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall seek the word of the Lord, but not find it. Silence. And yet, in this moment of despair and lament, God promises his mercy. Starting in chapter 9, verse 8, the last eight verses of the book of Amos are a message of hope, of restoration. We have already read these words this morning, starting in verse 11. Let's look there again. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Continuing in verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. God will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. He will repair and raise up and rebuild. Chapter 4, excuse me, verse 14 tells us he will restore the fortunes of his people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. The plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. They will not just rebuild, but they will have an overflow of crops and wine. And they shall never again be uprooted. This, we also know, happens. A remnant of God's people return and rebuild the cities and the lands of Israel. They are restored through God's mercy. So what does this mean for us? Why the book of Amos for us today? Warren Wearsby in his book, Be Concerned, Making a Difference in Your, Lo- in Your Time, writes this. If the prophet Amos were to come to our world today, he would probably feel very much at home. For he lived at a time such as ours when society was changing radically. Now, even though this book was written over 10 years ago, I imagine that rather than backing off of this statement, Dr. Wearsby would double down. Our society has only continued to change radically. I believe the message of Amos to us 
can still seem new and shocking. Do we take injustice seriously? Do we take idolatry seriously? Throughout the whole book of Amos, as God judges the Israelites for their injustice, the only solution he gives to having biblical justice is true worship of God. Are we worshiping God the way he has called us to do? Do we, as we read in chapter 5, verse 24 of Amos, have justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream in our own lives? Do we pick and choose which commands to follow and which ones to shrug off? Do we create our own altars of worship, our own idols, our own priesthood? Are we prideful in our works and the way we have conformed our worship to our culture? Or do we humbly accept that we are all sinners saved only by the grace of Christ? In the book of Matthew, Jesus is asked which is the greatest commandment in the law. And his response speaks first to proper worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And Jesus follows that with a second command. Love your neighbor as yourself, which speaks to injustice. He finishes by saying all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now I'm not sure I ever noticed the word prophets in that verse until I read it at the same time I was studying the book of Amos. The message of Amos hasn't changed. Biblical justice comes from obedient worship to God. In our current society, it is easy to identify injustice and idolatry. And here at Two Pillars, we are not high-ranking politicians or industry-leading giants, but yet we still must be aware of the command to worship God and to live out biblical justice. When my son Amos asks me why, my response is changed by the day because it's on. honestly it's hard being asked that over and over again. But what I always try to convey to him is that I love him and I care for him. God answers us in a better way. He sent Jesus, his son, to die for us because he loves us and cares for us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And it is through Christ for those who believe that we are restored. I know that was a lot this morning. We just flew around nine chapters of Amos. And of course there are parts of the book we had to completely skip. But one of the reasons to do a series like this where we go through one minor prophet each week is to help make it accessible to you as you read it. So what we cannot forget as we read the book of Amos is that God will judge everyone, whether we know him or not. But he is just. Secondly, all of what we read here happens. Happened, excuse me. Nations were destroyed. People died. Others were carried off into exile. But God restores his people. And whether it is in our time or not, God will restore his world again. Please pray with me. 
Father, I'm thankful for your word about who you are, Lord, that you are just, Lord, that you do love us and care for us, Lord, but also very clearly, Lord, you call us to first worship you as you have commanded, and secondly, to treat those around us with justice, Lord. I pray that we just lean into your spirit, your word, you, Lord, that we lean into you, knowing that it is through what Christ has done for us that we can worship you and we can love our neighbors. And I pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.